Hey, thanks for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to hear more and help support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness or find links to all our socials at zerobrightness.com. Nostalgia is a hell of a drug. If you want to get an easy reaction out of someone, just say, remember when. The warm, fuzzy feeling of a recovered memory is something that not a lot of other sensations can match. Especially when things just aren't going your way or you're dissatisfied with the state of the world, the past can be a healing balm. It's something that we all turn to from time to time. We like to reminisce, we like to think about the good old days, and we like to look over cherished memories. It gets a little trickier when that's put into a work of art, though. Nostalgia can often suffocate creativity. Nostalgia can straight up kill art. If we spend too much time asking remember when and not thinking about the thing we're making or what's important about it or what the core essence of that thing is, we can end up making something that is bad. I think that's kind of what I want to talk about today, but I also want to talk about a lot of other stuff. And this episode's going to be weird, and I know it's just me again, but I'm just going to ask you to go with me on this one this one time. Okay? Okay. Over the course of my life, I would not describe myself as a very nostalgic person, but I guess there was one time when nostalgia was pretty important to my identity and the things that I was into. And I think in order to talk about nostalgia, and especially in horror games, which we'll get to, don't worry. But in order to talk about that, we need to talk about the time that I was into nostalgia. It was when I was in middle school, and a lot of it was kicked off by meeting my friend Slater. The way we met was actually hilarious. We were both in the same English class, and on the first day of school, we were asked to say a couple things about ourselves to the whole class. And I chose to say, I like punk rock. And I immediately heard a kid across the room go, yeah! So, you know, after class, I went and talked to that kid. Uh, We basically became best friends for a few years and we were totally inseparable. And a lot of it was centered around the things that we liked. We liked punk rock, we liked weird music, we liked anime, we liked video games. And, you know, also, I guess, movies were in there somewhere too. We just liked a lot of the same stuff. We also had a lot of the same political ideas, those being just super radical leftism. He was like very, very into communism, for example. And I think that at that time, I guess without putting words to it or saying, oh, you know, this is what we believe, we were very, very into things from the past. You know, we loved the 80s. We loved listening to hardcore punk tapes. We loved playing the Nintendo Entertainment System. We loved the aesthetics and the vibe of 80s, right? But we also loved the 90s. We loved alternative rock from the 90s. We loved a lot of that slacker stuff like the band Pavement or the movie Mallrats. And especially when it came to anime, which is something we both really, really loved, the 80s and 90s were both super important. Like we love the super corny, cheesy stuff from the 80s like Bubblegum Crisis, but we also really love the grim, dark, 90s anime stuff like Neon Genesis Evangelion, which at that point in time, I'm sad to say, was actually not that old. That's because now I am quite old. We had this whole ethos that we crafted that was sort of like our version of punk rock, and a lot of it was rejecting anything that was popular, whether that was modernity or fashion or media or whatever. But, you know, After a while, I do think we kind of went all the way down the nostalgia hole, right? Like, you can only carry a torch for a bygone past, especially one that you didn't experience for so long, before you realize that there is something kind of weird and unhealthy about it. I think, you know, it was okay for us because we were in middle school, but by the time we were halfway through high school, I think we had both realized that you can't live that way forever. You can't think that way forever. Now, it's actually kind of funny. I think in terms of art or media, the thing that kind of unlocked that thinking in my head was given to me also by Slater. And it's probably the most important thing he ever did to me. And specifically, it's this. He showed me the band Pixies. 
Pixies are a pretty easy pick for the greatest band of all time. Their original run of albums is legendary. If you were affected by this band in the same way that I was, it's almost hard to put into words how important this band is. At the time that I first heard them, they were actually still kind of obscure within mainstream culture. They were obviously a hugely popular, influential, and beloved indie band, especially within underground music, they were hugely important, but this was still when their popularity was proliferating out, mostly through the appearance of their songs in popular movies and TV shows, and this was still a few years before they would reunite and bring their music to a whole new generation. Discovering the Pixies felt really personal to me. It felt like they were my little favorite band that only a select few people knew about. I think a lot of that is because I had never, ever heard of this band or even heard the name Pixies before Slater showed them to me. I remember telling him that and him being absolutely shocked. It was like telling him I had never heard the Beatles, you know? Like, I guess it's fine, but that is kind of weird. You've never heard a song by the Beatles? Another vivid memory is the first time I actually heard the band. Slater brought a CD of the album Surfer Rosa to school for me, and I had borrowed my sister's Walkman so I could listen to the album before I got home. Unfortunately, I didn't get to listen to the CD during school, but the minute I got on the bus, I put that CD in and pressed play and heard this. Like, this was enough. I was like, what? What the fuck is this? I had never heard anything like it. It was incredible. The sound of the music, the space in the music, the style, the wild abandon with which the band sang these songs. It was incredible. It was mind-blowing. It was like seriously a gateway drug moment, but with music. And Pixies are the perfect kind of gateway band. Nobody else sounds like them. They're super, super unique, and yet they've been so influential that you hear bits and pieces of their style and influence everywhere you look. It's the type of music that makes you want to seek out more cool, weird music, especially stuff that feels vaguely connected to this band, and you'll find it, and it'll just deepen your music obsession more and more the more that you listen. I've been playing music basically my whole life, but I think it was around that time when I was learning the guitar and when I heard bands like Pixies that I started to realize music could be something that I could take ownership of. I could make it mine and I could make music that felt distinctly my own. It wasn't just learning pieces by other people or playing cover songs with my friends. I could actually make my own music. It's really not a stretch to say that hearing the Pixies changed my life. I don't think I would be doing what I'm doing right now if I hadn't had that moment on the bus, courtesy of my friend Slater. For me, talking about the Pixies is inherently nostalgic, but not for any one single era. It's a band that I've loved so much for so long that it makes me think of everything. Makes me think of that moment on the bus. Makes me think of hanging out in the commons in high school or driving around in my first car. Makes me think of going to see them a few years after I first heard them when they improbably reunited and played what is arguably the worst large venue in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area. Like, truly, truly awful. It makes me think about living in my first apartment or playing in my first real band or... Working at a guitar store would we play them on the stereo all the time and we even try to get into that terrible first reunion record they put out, which uh, in hindsight, it's actually kind of good in a weird way. The point is, Pixies makes me think of so many different things from my life. It's tied to so many different memories that it is just kind of nostalgia music for me. And I don't think that's a unique experience or a unique take. The band's initial reunion tour run was with the original lineup of the band. A lot of people were super excited about this, and a lot of people, self-included, actually got to go see them play, and it was amazing. However, after a couple of years, the whole thing fell apart, mostly because one of the main songwriters and vocalists in the band, Kim Deal, didn't want to do the band anymore. It's hard to say exactly what happened, because everyone's been pretty cagey about it, but it sounds like writing new music wasn't going very well, and she decided to leave to focus on her long-running project, The Breeders. 
Side note, as important as the Pixies were to me as a kid, the Breeders have been to me as an adult. I am frequently known to say the phrase, Breeders are God. And either everyone I hang out with agrees with me or people are too scared to contradict me. But as far as I'm concerned, Breeders are God. That said, when Kim Deal left the band, they pivoted into mostly focusing on touring, doing big arena shows, playing the hits that people want to hear, putting out an album every few years, but nothing that would really move the meter. Although some of the stuff they've put out post-reunion is kind of good in a weird way, I don't think any of it really stacks up to their classic run, and I also don't really think that's too much of a controversial opinion. The Pixies exist now as a business that's fueled by people's nostalgia. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, they fucking earned it by making some of the best music in the world, but it is really strange to see something that kind of shook you out of believing in nostalgia as a powerful artistic force become another piece of nostalgia. Now that I've said the word about 50 million times, I guess it's a good time to stop and define what nostalgia is. Google says that it's a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. I think that's kind of a limiting definition because it's become such a powerful force in modern media and content. Like so much of what we see on the internet, whether it's like YouTube or podcasts or whatever, is just centered around showing people things from the past. And it could be something that you have experience with, but it could also be something that you just think is cool because you were born in the wrong generation. It's something that I knew I was going to have to contend with from the moment I started this show because so much of the horror video game world is centered around a few key games that came out in the 90s. So much of what we think of when we say phrases like survival horror or horror games are rooted in that time. And it's worth noting that a lot of the games that got me to start playing video games again within the horror genre borrow something from the past, whether it's certain gameplay ideas or aesthetics or whatever. It's hard to escape that particular feeling of looking backwards or nostalgia within horror games. However, I kind of want to separate out what I consider to be nostalgic and what I consider to just be retro aesthetics, because I do think they're two very different things. So let's break it down. Something that uses retro aesthetics isn't necessarily nostalgic. Now, when I say retro aesthetics, I mean something that uses a visual style or a presentation idea from the past or something that's associated with a different era from the past. The two games that I played the most on our old office computer, which was a secondhand iMac that generally ran like shit, were Yume Nikki and Lone Survivor. These two games are both great examples of this, not only because they came out in that kind of 2000s indie game boom, but also because they both have similar ethos when it comes to game design. Lone Survivor, for example, looks like a Super Nintendo game. There's no getting around that. However, its gameplay ideas are actually super forward-thinking. It's like a complete deconstruction of the survival horror genre made by someone who is looking at the term survival horror and taking each word literally, then designing a new type of game based on that analysis. It's amazing. It's one of my favorite games ever. In that game, the retro art style is deployed in a really interesting way. It lulls the player into a false sense of security. You feel like you're playing something familiar, something comfortable, so then when the moments of horror happen, it's really, really jarring and disturbing. It's similar with the survival aspects. As you're playing something that looks like Super Mario World, you don't expect to have to worry about your character like dying of hunger, but guess what? You do. To me, this is kind of like the best way to deploy a retro or nostalgic idea within a work of art. You take something from the past and use it as a signifier while making something else that is new and unique to you as an artist. I feel the same way about Yume Nikki. I mean, Yume Nikki looks like an Earthbound fan game, but it plays like very few other games. I mean, it's like an open-world, psychedelic walking sim, and it came out 10 years before we were using terms like open-world or walking sim. 
that's pretty fucking wild. Yume Nikki is a hugely unique and forward-thinking game. I wouldn't say there's anything nostalgic about its game design, and yet that visual style is also a huge part of its appeal. Once again, the contrast between playing something so strange and different and even alienating with the visual style that's super, super familiar to anyone who played a lot of Super Nintendo games is something magical. It helps contribute to the game's atmosphere and design, and it also helps contribute to the game's horror. A lot of the indie games I've spent the most time talking about on this show also fit into this mold. For example, Hyper Light Drifter, a game that looks like Zelda but has so many cool and unique ideas contained within it that the comparison seems ill-fitting if you've actually played the game. Another great example is Lost in Vivo, a game that seems obsessed with PS1 era aesthetics and other signifiers lifted directly from the PS2 era Silent Hill games, and yet manages to create an experience that's super unique and super different from anything else that I've ever played. Once again, just using an aesthetic from the past doesn't mean that you're making something that is nostalgic. It might be a little bit of marketing bait for people who are looking for that, but the game itself is something totally different, totally unique, and it's a great piece of art. This is maybe me getting to the bottom line way too early, but that is my objection to a lot of stuff that I would consider nostalgic. Nostalgia doesn't lend itself to making good art. It lends itself to making good products, things that people want to buy, things that people get excited about without even thinking about it. Having a Pavlovian response to something, however, doesn't mean that it's a good piece of art or that it's even very good at all. Now, what I would consider to be nostalgic in terms of game design is when a developer takes an idea from the past, let's say it's a mechanic or a certain look or whatever, and puts it into the game regardless of its quality or utility. So let's say that someone is making a horror game and they decide to give it tank controls. But the tank controls are literally just put in there to give people that classic survival horror nostalgia. And it doesn't actually enhance the work itself. It doesn't make the game better. It doesn't make the game more fun. It doesn't make the game more atmospheric. At that point, that mechanic only exists to stoke nostalgia. I started to notice that as a trend basically the day I got a Steam account and decided to start playing video games again. One of the first games I checked out was a game that's called Back in 1995, and I have to say, this game may have poisoned the well for me in terms of throwback survival horror games, because I do think it's actually one of the worst games I've ever played in my life. Back in 1995 is kind of a sarcastic, winking parody of classic survival horror games made by someone who claims to actually like these games, but there's just something about this game that feels so wrong that I find that hard to believe. It's a game that luxuriates in the surface level stuff of classic survival horror. The bad controls, the bad graphics, the clunky gameplay, the bad writing. It throws all those things into its game and deploys them as pieces of the work. However, it's done in a way that feels like it's making fun of classic survival horror games. It doesn't help that the game tries to have this weird sense of meta humor and even ends with like a weird message from the developer. It's just all really, really off-putting to me. It introduced me to the idea that someone could actually put in a lot of time and effort to make a video game, and they could position it as a tribute to classic survival horror or some other genre like that, and yet it could come off like they actually hate that genre, are making fun of the genre, and are making fun of the people who like it. I think the real weakness of this game, and this is important because I'm going to talk about this more shortly, I think the real weakness of this game is that it deploys that surface level stuff without a greater goal in mind. It says, hey, Resident Evil had tank controls, Resident Evil had these PS1 style graphics and bad goofy writing, let's just put that in the game. It's not in service of a larger goal like, hey, I think there's something actually creepy about that era, either the aesthetics or the atmosphere or something. Let's try and recreate that. It just says, hey, let's put that 
into the work and see what happens. In this case, what happened is, like I said, one of the worst games I've ever played, and as a fan of classic survival horror, something that I do kind of find offensive. This is an important piece of it as well. For me, I think survival horror is actually enjoyable. I think those classic survival horror games, for as clunky as they are, are actually really well made and really well designed. They were obviously made with gigantic limitations that kept them from making something that's as polished and as sound as the games that we play now, but there is still a lot of good design and there's a lot of good work that went into those games. The best of that genre is still fun to play today. Yes, you have to have a high tolerance for janky controls and wonky combat and all that kind of stuff, but the games themselves are still good. They are still fun to play. Something like back in 1995 expects to just co-opt all the ideas from those games without the good design and without the fun. And that's the big problem I had with that game. I didn't think it was fun to play. I didn't have any fun playing it. Unfortunately, I basically had all the same problems with the next game in this subgenre that I would play, and that's of course The Glass Staircase. This is a game that we covered on the show, so listeners are familiar with this, but I absolutely hated that game. I give that game a lot more credit because it did have some interesting aesthetic ideas, it did have some cool direction, it had some things going for it, but ultimately, once again, it was just not fun to play. In fact, it was kind of torturous to play. The controls were so bad and the combat was so bad and the game itself was just so hard to figure out that, I mean, once you had played about 15 minutes of it, you kind of see everything it has to offer and unfortunately there's still maybe another hour and a half of the game left and unfortunately those 90 minutes are basically pure torture. It's one of the most frustrating video game experiences I've ever had. In the time since, I've played a little bit more of the work of that developer called Puppet Combo, and I do think that some of that was definitely due to inexperience. That game was basically their first real game, it blew up and started gaining a lot of press, and when you play it, it feels like someone's first attempt at that kind of game. Having played some of their other stuff, I do think that it's getting better, but I also think that it is heavily, heavily based in nostalgia, and I find that to be a huge turnoff. When I started writing this episode, my whole goal was to try and figure out why I find that to be such a turnoff, why I find that stuff to be so repellent. So I decided to play a few more of these games, and I think I did kind of figure it out. But I've actually been writing this episode for a while and working on it for a while, and things happened in between. Things changed. There's no easy way for me to say this, and there's no way for me to say this without it sounding like I'm being dramatic or using this for content, and I'm not trying to do that. Um, So I I just am going to tell you guys this, that I found out a couple weeks ago, right around the same time I got COVID, funny enough, uh, I found out that my friend Slater, who I mentioned earlier, had passed away. It actually happened last year, and nobody told me. I kind of found out in a really weird, random way. It was super unexpected, and... Yeah, I've just been dealing with that, and it hit me super hard. And I started to think about this episode I had been working on, and started to think about nostalgia, because, well, so I had this week where I found out my, probably my oldest friend that I still kept in contact with, you know, not all the time, but every once in a while we would get together and catch up, and I found out that he had passed away, and... I also was stuck at home sick and I kind of just went full nostalgia man and I just laid on the couch and I watched Asian horror movies, East Asian horror movies, mostly from the 2000s and I started playing old survival horror games and playing some of these throwback survival horror games. and. It's funny that I think what I've always known and why I'm not a fan of nostalgia is that you can't go back. You can never go back. And the harder you cling to something, the harder you try to go backwards or to make a certain era or thing happen again, 
the more and more you're just digging yourself into a hole, I think there's something really, really dangerous about too much nostalgia because it impedes your own personal growth and it keeps you from experiencing new and exciting things in the world. I mean, there's so many things in the world that could bring you joy, that could bring you happiness or that could change your life. But if you just stick your head in the sand and you become totally focused on nostalgia, you're almost guaranteed to miss those things. It's a really hard thing to examine in this context because when someone dies, all you have left are your memories of them. That's the only thing that matters. And so if you want to think about that person or feel close to that person, all you can do is remember. But memory is not the same as nostalgia. I mean, I've told you guys tons of childhood memories, and a lot of them are pretty fun. I don't have to bring up the fact that my home life was completely fucked and my parents were super abusive. You know, I'm not nostalgic for that time, but I have good memories. Someone's story can end in a really horrible and tragic way, but you still have memories. Some of them are going to be good. When I think about my friends who are gone and I've lost a fair few at this point in my life, I don't really think about the super dark and horrible times. I mean, if it's relevant and it's important to, sure, we should confront those things. And like, yeah, everyone should go to therapy and take care of their mental health. But I think if you're just trying to remember something, you're going to remember the good times. Like, I'm going to remember watching really shitty anime bootlegs in Slater's basement. I'm going to remember playing Kirby Superstar all the time in that same basement. And I'm going to remember him being super fucking high in the backseat of my 95 Honda Civic that had this weird smell that we couldn't get out of it because I bought it from a really shady dude. I think someone died in there. And yeah, Slater just used to get high and lay in the backseat and ask you to turn up whatever music you're listening to. And it was usually the Wu-Tang Clan. That's what I'm going to remember. I don't think that is necessarily nostalgia. I don't think that clinging to those memories or enjoying those memories or examining them is the same as saying that you wish you were back there, that you wish nothing ever changed, nothing ever progressed, that you never grew up. I think that's a thought that's really unhealthy. And I get it because everything is horrible and the world is shit and everyone feels like shit right now. I feel like shit, but we can't go back. You can never go back. I think nostalgia to me is false hope. The false hope that you can just turn back time and you can experience everything over and over again. I guess the point I want to make and that I'm going to make over the next few minutes when I somehow manage to switch topics over to talking about video games again is that you don't actually miss those old video games. You miss the feeling of being a kid and not worrying about rent. I've said this over and over and nobody listens to me because as we all know, nobody listens to me. But that's the truth. Even the people who send me hate mail and tell me that they know what fans and listeners of this show want, you guys are wrong. You think the episodes about super nostalgic stuff like Sega Genesis games and obscure survival horror actually got us listens? They didn't. The most popular episodes are about the most popular games. And guess what? That Hideo Kojima episode outperformed basically everything we've done about a core horror topic. So, yeah, if anyone wants to see the back-end numbers, well, I'm not going to show them to you, but you'll just have to trust me. I get it. I get it. I miss it too. I miss not worrying about these things. I miss not grieving. I miss a lot of things. But I'm still here. I'm still living. And it's the only thing you can do. I've said it over and over on this show. It's been a recurring theme over the last year. You just have to keep on trying. You just have to keep on keeping on. There's really nothing else for it. I know I'm asking too much. I know it's impossible. Hope in a hopeless world is a dream, but it's a dream that can be real. It's a thing 
that we can all have, and I guess I don't want to lose anyone else, so if you are the kind of person who doesn't have anyone in your life to tell you this, I'm begging you to try and to have hope and to hang on. When I play these throwback survival horror games, I don't get nostalgic. I don't think of the good times. I'm not reminded of my favorite old survival horror games. I just think of how much time has passed and how the stuff just isn't good anymore. Like, don't get me wrong, I love going back and playing classic survival horror games. A lot of them still play surprisingly great. But if you make a new game and you try and get me into some new thing using all these clunky, creaky, old ideas, I'm just not gonna get into it. Now, I played a few of these games, or at least tried out a few of these games for this episode. I'm gonna talk about a few now, and then I'm gonna bring on my pal Justin to talk about more in a future episode. The first game that I played though is one that a lot of you guys have asked me to play, and I'm so sorry that I didn't like it, but man, did I not like it. And that was, of course, Tormented Souls. Tormented Souls definitely has a much higher production value and is a lot slicker than any of the other games that I've mentioned in this episode. And yet, I basically had all the same problems with it that I had with something like The Glass Staircase. Tormented Souls is a new take on classic survival horror, but the only thing that's really new are the visuals. And let me say this, the visuals are very, very nice. It's a really, really pretty game clearly well made, a lot of time and care and love went into it. However, the game itself I just found to be so, so underwhelming. The ideas that it pulls from classic survival horror are just so, so boring. You know, it's got tank controls, it's got fixed camera angles, it's got really, really bad combat and even worse inventory and map system. And on top of that, it's actually pretty fucking difficult. The combat is difficult, the puzzles are obtuse. It really expects a lot from the player and yet it doesn't give you anything outside of that hit of nostalgia. The intro to the game really clearly establishes it by being more or less a shot-for-shot -shot remake of the intro of Clock Tower 3. And maybe mixed in with a little bit of Haunting Grounds, including this super awkward, out-of-nowhere, like, very porny sexualization of its main character. The fact that they made that really, really obscene gagging animation I think says a lot more about the game than any press release ever could. Once you get rolling though, you realize that it's pretty much the same as any PS2 era survival horror game. You know, it's got a cool intro, some nice atmosphere, but the minute you have to like solve a puzzle or do combat, you're more or less fucking miserable. I think this is my big problem with these type of nostalgia based games. I don't feel that there's any central idea to it or artistic merit. And let me explain that. What I mean to say is that if a game designer said, I want my game to have tank controls because I think tank controls enhance the horror or enhance the atmosphere, I would understand that. However, in these games, everything is so one-to-one -one with classic survival horror that it's distracting. I find that I can't even remotely begin to get into the atmosphere that the game is trying to create or something that the game is trying to do because everything is so familiar. Everything is so played out, in my opinion. And when I see all these different elements that are incorporated into the game, I don't see a bigger picture reason for incorporating them. Like I said, I just see a retro retread. Tormented Souls is far from the worst offender here. That distinction has to go to remothered Tormented Fathers, which now that I think about it, this might actually be the worst game I've ever played. <laughs> I'm not sure. Remothered is a game that was initially created as like a fan game sequel or spiritual successor to Clock Tower, but specifically Clock Tower on the PS1, a game that I've made no bones about telling you guys how much I hate. I think that game is atrocious. I think it's terrible. As someone who likes certain other games in the series, specifically the original Clock Tower on Super Nintendo and Clock Tower 3 on the PS2, 
I think Clock Tower on the PS1 and its sequel, which is almost identical, are terrible, terrible, terrible games. I guess at best I can say, you know, the visuals and some of the style is a little bit charming if you like that PS1 aesthetic. Everything else about the game is fucking awful. Remothered asks, well, what if you made a game that was exactly like that fucking awful game? And I think it's a perfect, perfect illustration of what I've been talking about in terms of nostalgic game design. This game just lifts all of the mechanics from Clock Tower PS1 without any thought for if it's fun, if it's interesting, if it actually builds tension, and if it's even worth playing for anyone. The answer to all of those questions, in my opinion, is no. Like in Clock Tower, Remothered severely, severely limits your movement, speed, and the interaction you have with the world. It basically puts you in a little labyrinth and has a serial killer chase you. You need to creep around, stealth, and occasionally hide or use items in order to escape detection. The problem is that the game is super, super repetitive. It's at least in part procedurally generated, so although there are scripted cutscenes and events, a lot of times you're just going to be sneaking around trying to escape while an AI stalks and chases you. I just find the control style, the movement style, and everything about this gameplay style to be so boring and infuriating. It's so, so, so frustrating, and it's even more frustrating when consider this game only really has one mechanic, which is stealth. There's no combat. There's no fighting back. So I think the expectation should be that the stealth should be pretty good, and it's not. It's terrible. On top of that, the game itself is so, so, so mind-numbingly repetitive that I find it impossible to imagine anyone thinking this was tense or scary. Like, maybe the first time you get grabbed by the serial killer guy, it's a little bit tense or scary, but by the 15th time you've done it, either because the game just keeps repeating the same scenes or because you keep dying over and over, I can't imagine how there's still any sort of like tension or terror created by this game. On top of that, the game really does lean into the poorly written, acted, and paced cutscenes and terrible, terrible, cringy dialogue, but when combined with the relatively modern visuals, it doesn't really have any charm in my opinion. And that's something that I think is a problem for a lot of the games I've mentioned this, in this episode. It's definitely a problem in Tormented Souls. It's definitely a problem in this game. It's a problem in the next game I'm going to talk about. I think that if you're not going to lean into that retro aesthetic, it kind of creates an uncanny valley effect, right? Where you're looking at it and you're thinking, this is a modern game, but everything that's happening on screen is horrible and janky and terrible. And instead of being charming like it might be in a real PS1 game or a game that really, really nails that style, it's just boring, shitty, and kind of unsettling in a weird way. I think the thing that really weirds me out about this specific type of game, a game that looks modern but has survival horror mechanics, is that my brain is constantly wondering, why isn't this better? Why was the choice made to make this game so clunky, and yet the production value seems to be relatively high. To me, the answer really must be that it's just a nostalgia-based marketing tool. They're trying to point to people and say, hey, you like classic survival horror, here's a new classic survival horror game. The thing is that we do actually still get those games. There are devs who are making new, really, really well-made, really fun-to-play horror games that are heavily, heavily influenced by classic survival horror. I think it's weird to say that all the leaps and bounds that we've seen made in game design and tech over the last 20 years are all basically worthless and that we should go back to making games that were objectively bad even if at the time it's the best thing that could have been produced within this genre. What I'm trying to say is that art changes and grows over time. Things evolve. And sure, it's fun to look back on the old things because they don't go anywhere. They're not deleted, they still exist and we get to go back and enjoy them, but I think making new stuff that's just a photocopy of an old thing I don't know, man. That's just really depressing and boring to me. 
I think it's kind of like having a cover band slightly changing the chords and the lyrics to your set and then saying it's an original album, which happens all the time. You guys remember the band Jet? I hope you don't. I hope you don't remember the band Jet, but that's neither here nor there. The point is that if you look at modern horror games as an evolution of classic survival horror games and classic horror games, we are still getting these games. I don't really see the utility of these throwback horror games, especially when they aren't fun and they aren't scary. And in my opinion, they just don't have that atmosphere that we experienced with the original run of survival horror games. Like if you go back and play the original Silent Hill, the atmosphere and the aesthetic is so heavy and it's so perfect. And when I play these modern throwback type games, I don't get that at all. One game that I do want to talk about briefly that I think absolutely nailed this is Bloober Team's The Medium. The Medium was not only a fantastic game, but it really was very old school in a lot of its design decisions. With its dynamic, fixed camera angles and combat-free gameplay, it really did feel like a throwback to, if not classic survival horror, then maybe some kind of like horror PC adventure game from the 90s. However, the game had a ton, a ton of modern touches. I mean, the controls are good, it's fun to explore and interact with the world, the game is really breezy, it doesn't waste your time making you read too many notes or solve too many obtuse puzzles. The game has a really, really great flow. It's super fun to pick up and play. It's also heavily, heavily, heavily influenced by Silent Hill, which is something that people noticed right away and developers cop to themselves. They even got Akira Yamaoka to do a few pieces of music for the soundtrack. It definitely has a throwback feel to it, and yet the game itself feels fresh and new and fun to play in the way that we expect a new game in the modern age to feel. I guess I'm trying to say that I felt like those choices that were made in that game feel like they were made for artistic reasons. There's a specific perspective, there's a specific presentation style to the world and the characters that the devs wanted to stick to, and it works super, super well. Those retro or retro-leaning touches in the game make everything come together super well. It also gives the game a distinct feel within that dev's gameography. For example, the fact that it's in third person and that it has this like distinct European aesthetic makes it stand out against their other works, which are usually a little bit more grounded in terms of their setting and also set within a first person game perspective. It's a really, really impressive game, not only on its own terms, but because it is seen as sort of like a spiritual successor to something like the original Silent Hill. I was thinking about the medium a lot as I played the last game on my list here, which is Song of Horror. This is a game that I would describe as the medium, but if it wasn't very good. Now, I do think Song of Horror is a cut above Tormented Souls and Remothered, of course, Remothered, because woof. It still has a lot of those same problems. In a lot of ways, it has the exact same control and presentation style as the medium. However, relative to that game, it feels like all of the streamlining and modern touches were just absolutely removed from the game. So like the medium, it has a dynamic fixed camera and tank controls, and you mainly just move about the world, interacting with objects, getting little text blurbs, and picking up items to solve puzzles. Not long after the game start, there's also a sort of clock tower-esque running from enemies mechanic that's introduced, as well as a small set of rudimentary stealth mechanics that are used to build tension and add a little bit of danger into what is otherwise sort of a point-and-click adventure game. My problem with Song of Horror, besides the fact that I just didn't think its setting characters or aesthetics were very interesting. It kind of felt like this alone in the dark retread where it was trying to be sort of literary but kind of ended up being just a little bit brown and stuffy. My main problem here is that the game just feels clunky and overstuffed. 
Like, for example, when you enter a room in the medium, you can move around it unimpeded like you would in pretty much any horror game, and every once in a while you'll see a little dot pop up, meaning that there's something there you can interact with. In Song of Horror, when you enter a room, basically like 15 dots will light up. And these dots could be anything from a key item that you need to solve a puzzle to a short blurb that contains a couple sentences. It is, in my opinion, absolutely maddening. It's like the notes problem in horror games. You know how survival horror games always have way, way, way too many notes laying around full of super boring and uninteresting text? It's like that times a million. It was unbelievable. It got to the point where every time I entered a new room, it felt like I was at work and I opened my email and saw like 20 new emails. This wave of dread would just wash over me. Once you've explored the rooms though, and you're kind of free to move around without seeing those goddamn little white dots pop up, things don't get much better because the puzzles in the game are super obtuse and they're not helped by the clunky controls and movement style. Instead of a right stick camera control like you'd expect in a standard modern video game, the right stick controls your light source, so say like a flashlight or a candle, and it also changes where your character is looking. Now this is a really weird and disorienting thing though because like I said, it's fixed camera. The only feedback you get from changing where your character is looking is obviously the light source, the position of their head, and then of course, those little white dots. I played this game's demo for way too long before realizing that I needed to look up to find certain things. And at that point, I was just so done with the game. Like I said, this is definitely not the worst game of this bunch. However, I think it highlights the main problem I have with these games. I don't think these mechanics are fun, and moreover, I don't think these mechanics help build atmosphere or tension. By and large, these games all have these super familiar looking aesthetics. They're like vaguely 1800s looking, it's always in an old asylum or an old mansion. It generally uses like a visual style that you're familiar with, mostly through playing classic survival horror games and classic PC adventure games. And I feel like by sticking so closely to those familiar styles and familiar parameters, these games really rob themselves of the opportunity to present the player with something they haven't seen, to surprise or scare them in a real, genuine way. Like, I was thinking about this recently, the games over the last few years that have really really gotten under my skin are games that did something really different with their presentation and gameplay. I was thinking specifically of Visage, the game I'm Scared, and the game Lost in Vivo. Those games put you in such weird, unnerving scenarios and there were things that were super unfamiliar. You hadn't had that experience before. They messed with your sense of space in time, they messed with your sense of what is real and what isn't. They really put in a lot of work to create an unfamiliar scenario that, like I said, really got under my skin and really creeped me out. Playing these games, I didn't even feel like there was much atmosphere or tension because it was just so familiar, it was so rote, and it was also so trite. The writing in all these games is like so bad, I didn't care about any of these characters or anything that was going on, and none of it even had a decent hook. Even looking at something that is pretty hokey, like Eternal Darkness, I do think that the pacing and the writing in that game is very, very good. And at the beginning, before you even get into all the like, you know, super overwrought, overwritten type of dialogue and stuff, you're there for the story. It's got a good hook. It's weird and creepy and interesting, and they also just let you loose in this house right from the start. Song of Horror puts you through a lot of cutscenes before you're even let loose in a creepy mansion, and once you're there, it's not actually that creepy. It's just kind of drab, it's kind of familiar, and I don't know. I didn't see the appeal, and I guess I could say that about all these games. I just don't really see the appeal. Classic survival horror games are still there for you to replay and enjoy whenever you want. New horror games are here to show you things you haven't seen and maybe freak you out with some totally new, crazy idea. These games, I feel, are stuck in the middle. They don't really have anything new or unique or interesting to offer, and... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's a game in this style that's going to change my mind about that, 
or really opened me up to the possibility of actually being excited about these games. I am going to play more of them, but that's mostly so I can talk to my friend Justin about it. Nostalgia is a hell of a drug, or so I'm told. I get it too. It's fun to relive the past. It's fun to think about days that are gone that'll never come back. There's something satisfying about thinking how far you've come and reflecting on where you've been. But nostalgia does not make for good art. And nostalgia is just not a good guiding principle in design. The truth is that things change and people change. Everything changes. And as much as we can take things from the past, we can learn from the past and we can make great art by incorporating things that came before, it's also important to keep that shit moving. It's important to change and grow and evolve. Like I said earlier, if you get too into nostalgia, if you really put your head all the way in the sand, you're going to miss out on the things that are happening around you. And if you ask me, that is the real survival horror. Thank you.